I want to invite you to go ahead and open up to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah chapter 9. We'll look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. These are the words of God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have gathered this evening to glorify your Son, to honor him, celebrate him, and renew covenant with you through him. We ask now that as we open up your word, that you would open our eyes so that by faith we can be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. This month marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and we here at Cross and Crown Church, who unequivocally affirm Protestant Reformed theology, are excited about this historic occasion. The reason we are excited about this anniversary is not merely because we are alive right now to be a part of it, nor are we excited because we have some sort of nostalgic historical void in our hearts that we wish to fill. We love the Reformation because of what the Reformation meant and what it means today. The Protestant Reformation was a spirit-induced Reformation, one in which the true people of God went back to the Bible to shake off the chains of man-made institutions and unlawful authority. It was the Reformers, both those that you may know or may not know, um, <coughs> The reformers who you may, may or may not know, who were basically, they were decidedly in favor of going back to the scriptures to find true doctrine. Um, but not just to dr true doctrine, they were excited to go back to find true practice. The Reformation means that our believing of the word of God must find its appointed consummation in the doing of the word of God. Say it again. Our believing of the Word of God must find its appointed consummation in our doing of the Word of God. In other words, merely knowing the right things isn't enough. We must also do the right things. So the Reformation that began 500 years ago is still in progress. It's still happening. It's still in process. In fact, we are pressingly in need of another Reformation today. A Reformation in the church and a reformation in the public square. Now, last week in our very first message, we covered the need for us to understand our calling, our purpose. Um, Christians are called to take the land. We are called to obedience to God's law word in every single area of life. And so we'll just say it. Our job is to Christianize the planet. Okay, that's, that's what our job is. That's what our calling is is. Um, in fact, that, that's actually our purpose statement. Cross and Crown Church, if someone asks you why do you exist, well here's why we exist. We exist to equip people to press the crown rights of Jesus Christ into every area of life. Okay? 
That's on our website. That's in our DNA. That's, that's why we're here. All of Christ for all of life. We want to make disciples, but that's not just a cutesy term that we can throw around from time to time. You know, oh yeah, well, we, we're, we make disciples. And then we leave it undefined. We have to define all of our terms. So our job, as we saw last week in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, is to teach people to obey Christ. Okay, that's, that's our job. We are to teach people to obey Christ. And for some reason, this is conveniently passed over by evangelicals who don't understand it, or worse yet, they won't understand it. We want to equip people, everyone from our legislators to the single mother who's struggling to make ends meet, we want to equip people, to teach people, to press, to actively push and promote the crown rights of our Lord Jesus Christ into every area of life. Now, you may agree with this statement, and you might do so with, such, um, with much vehemence. But how does this work? How must Christians take the land? Since we believe that knowing and doing are equally necessary and important, how must we take the land? How do we do it? What are we supposed to do? What shouldn't we do? How, how do we do this? What's our strategy? If Christ is Lord, and he most assuredly is, what are we actually to, do, to be doing about it? So last week, we asserted this calling, this purpose. Tonight, I want to show us the strategy behind it. And then next week, as the Lord sees fit, we'll look at our distinctives. So, so these three weeks, we're calling Take the Land, is our vision. This is our mission. So we're just putting all our cards on the table and letting you know everything up front. Um, if you look at your text in Isaiah 9, I just want to make a few observations and then build from there. Let's go ahead and look at verse 6 again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When, when Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh in what we call the incarnation, he did so by going the usual route. Um, he didn't just appear as a man, in a middle-aged man with a beard. That he did the, the usual thing. The Holy Spirit, inside of the Virgin Mary, conceived a child, a fetus. In God's sovereign power, God, the Son, became a baby. God, the Son, became a child. This child was born, as Isaiah says, he was given in verse 6. And the, Isaiah also says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. In other words, what does that mean? Well, here, here's what it means. The burden of carrying the entire authority of the universe would be placed on him. Okay? All authority in heaven and on earth, the government, all of that would be put on his shoulder. He is the wonderful counselor. He is, in fact, mighty God, everlasting father, um, Prince of Peace. Now, in verse 7, we read something very interesting. It says this, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Jesus Christ was born. He lived a perfect life. He died as a cursed man. He was buried, and he was raised. But one of the things that happened after these events 
was his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. When Jesus was raised, make note that he was raised in power. In fact, he even told his disciples, if you remember, before sending them into the world to take the land, he said, all authority and power has been given to me. In other words, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was the very means by which Christ's government would be implemented and established in the world. Okay? Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection was the very means by which Christ's government, of the increase of his government, right? That's how that's implemented and established in the world. This is the government of which there will be no end. Um, we just read that in the Nicene Creed, right? His kingdom, there will be no end to it. That's a, a very biblical statement. The authority and power to rule all things starts in Christ Jesus. And notice, it does not end. There is no end to his kingdom, no end to his dominion. He has it. It belongs to him. There's no expiration date, right? That It just goes on and on and on and on. God's arm, in other words, is not too short to save, and Christ's power is not too limited to rule. But we must keep reading. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Notice Isaiah the prophet says, from this time. From what time? When does Christ's kingdom begin? Is it future? Are we waiting? Jesus, he's in voluntary exile, to quote one prominent pastor, who's just, you know, hand-wringing and just waiting and eager to become king. Or is he king from this time. What time? Well, the time the child was given. Jesus Christ was born to be a king. Amen. He was born so that he could live as a man, die as a man, and be raised as a king. And with this status comes authority and power, jurisdiction, and justice and righteousness. One of the things that I want to make sure we understand is that Jesus is, in fact, king. But that isn't something we just say. So if you ask your average churchgoer, you know, is Jesus king? And usually you'll get, well, of course, yeah, yeah, he's king. He's king of my heart. Or, you know, the, some, some sort of statement like that. But what does it actually mean to be king? What does it mean for Jesus Christ's government, his authority and his power, to be an ever-present reality in the earth, in the daily affairs of men? That's the question. Does Jesus Christ being exalted Lord over heaven and earth mean anything tomorrow morning when you have to go to work? Does it mean anything you know, Thursday at the meeting that you're dreading to have. So if you ask that question to somebody, and I dare you to do that, you can do that. Ask the question, does Jesus Christ being Lord over heaven and earth have anything to do with tomorrow morning? Ask the question, and you'll probably get a funny look. What, what could that possibly mean? When we talk about Christ's authority and power, we have to be careful not to dismiss what the Bible actually teaches about it. Okay. The lordship of Christ is a total lordship. It's a total lordship. It is a complete lordship. It is heaven and earth. It is America and Vietnam. Uh, it's Mexico and China. Contrary to what you may have been taught or assumed, the Messiah's lordship does not stop at the steps of the Supreme Court. Okay? Jesus' lordship does not stop at the front steps of the Supreme Court. His lordship is absolutely comprehensive and absolutely um, total. 
We do not find places in time and space where Jesus Christ isn't Lord. You can look, and you can spend your entire life looking, but you won't actually find it. When the Bible speaks of this king's authority and this king's power, it speaks of it as being the final and complete place where authority resides. Okay? In other words, the, there is no court of appeals over Jesus Christ. You, you can't go past him and appeal to some other standard and say, well, I don't like his ruling. I don't like his version of justice. I'm going to appeal outside of that. You can't do it, okay? The Supreme Court actually isn't supreme. <laughs> kind of funny that we call him that, but that's what it is. Because of this passage and others in Scripture, including even the parables of, of Jesus himself, we need to know that Christ's kingdom increases which also means, as um, some of us were talking the other night, Satan's decreases. Christ's kingdom increases, Satan's decreases. When Satan tried to usurp God and, and set up his own kingdom in the world, after successfully tempting Adam and Eve, he did so in a way that was ultimately fruitless. This snake would, in fact, bruise the heel of Christ, as exemplified on the cross, but the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would crush the snake's head, as exemplified in the resurrection. Easter weekend was the fulfillment of the first gospel promise of Genesis 3.15. The Messiah has come. He's defeated the dragon in order to get the girl, the bride. That's the, that's the Bible's storyline. So history is built on this whole idea. The kingdom of God has broken through and continues to break through in all cultures, in all times, and in all places. The desire of God is for the enemies of Christ to be placed under his feet as a footstool. That doesn't sound very tolerant, I realize, so we may risk um, being maligned for that. But that's what God's desire is. Um, Psalm 110.1, right? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's what God desires to do with this king. This dominion, this unending kingdom rule and reign goes quite literally, as we've saying, far as the curse is found. Any place the sin goes, the grace of God goes deeper and further still. Now, <clears throat> all of that is, is fine and dandy, and you may even be super excited about it, and you're ready to just take the land. But what does this look like in practice? What, it, what are our kingdom strategies? What we need more than ever right now is a comprehensive theology, philosophy, and practice of what we call Christian resistance. We need a comprehensive philosophy, theology, and practice of Christian resistance. As Gary North had says, has said once, victory takes practice. We need both positive and negative elements of Christian resistance, okay? So we need, track with me here, we need to be building things and resisting things. So we need hammers and, and we also need swords, okay? We, we need both. We need to deconstruct and we need to reconstruct all of society based upon the law word of God. Now, <clears throat> if you're not already there, here's, here's how you need to be thinking. Okay, especially as a 21st century, you know, you're here, it's 2017, about to be 2018, and the world's on fire, but we're cool because we're optimistic in our eschatology, so it's, it's all good, but it does seem like the world's on fire and burning down. Here's how you should think about this. Behind all of the rhetoric, all of the 24-7 news cycles, 
and all of the political posturing that's on repeat, all behind all of that lies a worldview. A worldview built on humanism, which is simply the belief that man is supreme, sovereign, and entirely in control, right? So humanists believe that God doesn't predestine, man predestines. You know, man is the controlling factor, not the sovereign king of the universe. So if, if we, as faithful Christians, are going to strategically dismantle this worldview, and dismantle it we must, we better have our Christian worldview well thought out and understood. In order to launch a, a full-scale invasion plan against humanism and all the other gods of society, here are four things we have to be committed to, okay? We have to be committed to these four things. First, and they're all, they're all foundational. First thing, the absolute supremacy and sovereignty of God in all things. That's non-negotiable. You, you have to have all four, especially this one, it's foundational. The absolute supremacy and sovereignty of God in all things. Second thing, the self-attesting authority of the scriptures which simply means it's our presuppositional apologetic. When we, when, we, when we charge and we, all right, let's take the land, and we're all, everybody's fired up, locked and loaded, you have to have that too. You have to have the supremacy of God, the sovereignty of God. You also have to have the scriptures, the authority of the word of God, okay? Third thing you have to have is a post-millennial optimistic eschatology, okay? If you think that you are going to lose, you will lose, and that is the fruit of dispensationalism and even amillennialism and all of these aberrant theologies that, you know, we're just, we're playing the game because we have to, but we know we're going to lose. We have to have a, an optimistic understanding of future things. We have to actually believe what the scriptures say about Christ's government growing and increasing. We have to be okay with that, and we have to believe it. Fourth thing. And this is crucial as well. The fourth thing is the binding authority of biblical law. The binding authority of biblical law. Now, very few Christians believe all of these. Very few Christians believe all of them. Okay, you, You'll find some Christians who believe some of them, um, or maybe a twisted version of some of them. Um, but very few believe all of it. And that's, how, that's, how, that's why we need reformation in the church. So we're not going to win anything until we recover these. Okay, we're, we're just not. We're not going to win anything until we recover these essential things. And so we believe that, that because Christ is Lord and his government is in place, it's established, his kingdom is, is here, it's present, it's a glorious kingdom that's going to grow and grow and grow. From that government, though, stems four different spheres of government. And you can read about some of those things on our website. But here are those things, okay? Think of it this way, you know, Christ's government, his authority is over all things, but how has he structured that? What, what actually happens in the world? What are the spheres that he has put in place to help us kind of, you know, sort through it all? Well, these are the four spheres. First one is self-government. Self-government, and we'll, I'll explain those in a bit when we get there. Self-government is the first one. The second one is family government. The third is church government. And the fourth is civil government. Self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. So underneath God's sovereignty is Christ's full authority as revealed in Scripture. 
And each of these four spheres has their proper roles, functions, jurisdictions, and priorities. So, like, if you're talking to someone, and what is your church, and what is Crossing Crown all about? Well, let me tell you. Here's our blueprints. Like, we're just laying them out on the table for you. So, usually, you typically don't, you know, give your battle plans to the enemy, but we're, we're fine with it, because Jesus is in control. And, in fact, he's already won. The war's over anyway. But there are a few battles that we got to, you know, keep going after. But these are our blueprints. Self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. The only way to fix the collapsing social order we find ourselves in is by providing an alternative social order, one which takes these spheres seriously enough to actually believe them and do them. Okay? That's the only way we fix what's going on out, out here. The gospel message must be at the center of everything we say and do, but since we believe it's the gospel of the kingdom, and since we have these truths found in Scripture, we are now in a position to do something amazing. We are in a position to craft a new social order and watch it then unfold. We get to build something under Christ's sovereignty and watch it actively go against the crumbling one all around us. So when you see that we're like, what is it, $20 trillion in debt as a nation, and you, you see fiat money and all these other issues and, and all of the economic problems, uh, when you look at all of these other problems around us, we, get to, we don't just sit around and say, well, man, that's terrible, and then we take our ball and go home. <clears throat> we, we actually come up with solutions. We come up with plans to say, well, actually, you don't have to live that way. Here's how you can live. Here's how you can experience blessing. Within each of these spheres, we want to promote several things. For example, in the sphere of self-government, we believe absolutely in the right and duty of private judgment. It's incredibly important. Okay, The right and duty of private judgment. You as an individual Christian with the Bible in your hand, you have to be convinced in your own mind you have to develop your theology. Don't be a heretic, just a quick warning, <laughs> but definitely build something. Take the scriptures, systematize it, put it together. That's yours, okay? Another way that forces itself out is parents basically ought, to, you ought to have your consciences and your convictions shaped by the scripture when it comes to things like baptism and all these other issues, okay? So we have different beliefs um, uh, even at our leadership level with regard to baptism, and, and we're, we're absolutely okay with that. We're absolutely comfortable because we believe that falls on individuals and families, that, that it falls on, on fathers who are the covenant heads of their households. They are the ones that have to be able to, to be convinced by Scripture. They have that, that beautiful doctrine of private judgment. Within the realm of, realm of self-government also comes things like personal holiness, what are you doing daily to be more like Christ? What, are, what sins are you at war against? What are you actively putting to death in your own life, sins that need to be slayed? Um, the study and application of Scripture. Are you in the Word? I'm excited about our book loan program to get, get good material in the hands of people who may have questions about different things. How, does, you know, how, do, how do I apply this to this or whatever? Th those are made available. Um, also within self-government, you have to have a proper theology of work. It's like Americans just work to pay the bills, and that's the only thing. What, what's your theology of work as an individual? Also, what is your individual purpose in the kingdom of God? Kids, this is for you. 
Your, your job isn't to just learn things and recite them as much as we love catechisms and use them. Your job is to develop the gifts that God has given you so that you can glorify Him and honor Him as you grow and mature and learn. Um, in the sphere of family government, second thing, we at Crossing Crown will promote the necessity of things like family worship in the home, the necessity of Christian education for our children, proper gender roles and parenting roles in the home, and also the treatment of children as covenant members. Um, we, we don't have a, a children's program here. That's why they're all just kind of hanging out doing their thing. We think that's how it should be, all right? Um, kids, you're not secondary citizens in the kingdom. You are part of Christ's bride. You are his children. Um, we'll have corporate worship that will include kids no matter how loud it seems. It, it's, see, it doesn't matter. Like, it's all good. So the home is where all of this has to start, though. You need to understand this. Reformation in the church and society simply will not happen until we have a proper family government. That's part of what the social order around us can't provide. In the sphere of church government, we will promote the necessity of, of qualified and competent elders. Um, kingdom work here is the body of Christ, laboring as a church um, to, to see these things come to fruition. We also want to have a discerning cooperation with other Christian assemblies. We, we know that Cross and Crown Church is, is kind of a slice of the big pie. We, we want to work with other um, churches on other projects, whether that's business or abolition and different movements and things like that. Um, we want to promote Lord's Day worship. We want to promote the preaching of the Bible, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Supper. Fourthly, some strategic things as regard to the, the fourth sphere, which is civil government. We believe and are convinced that we have to have, um, we, we have to be Christian activists. So pietists like to lock, their, lock themselves in the closet and pray 17 hours a day. I don't know anybody that does that, but that's, that's the thinking. We ought to be Christian activists. We need to be promoting proper justice in the world. We need to be involved in local, state, and national politics. Um, our plan is to be engaged in all levels of government. That's, that's you know, some future things too. But um, we also want to promote the doctrine of lesser magistrates. We want to plead with those in authority to resist the tyranny from those above them in authority. We also want to promote and do the work of abolition. We live in the midst of another Holocaust, and the vast majority of churches and Christians simply could care, they, they could not care any less. So if we build, <clears throat> if we build these spheres in these areas, we will have a social order that rivals the social order of the day. Okay, if we if we commit ourselves to these spheres of uh, underneath Christ's unending government, government, I'm convinced. Indeed, we are convinced that we can and will have a major impact on the world around us. Our job is to proclaim the gospel and let it spill over the banks and flood the place. That's what we want. That's our job. Now, because there's no neutrality in the world and because it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the question, the question before us as we think about building a social order that rivals the ones that we see out there the question is never if the church is going to be molded and shaped and reformed by something. The question is actually what is doing the shaping? What is doing the molding? Um, is, it, is it the culture around us or is it the word of God? And 
because we live in a culture that's drunk on its lusts and because the church at large has basically developed this aversion to the law of God, we have to be able to deconstruct and reconstruct. We have to deconstruct and reconstruct. Remember, we have to resist things, actively resist things, but we also have to build things. In other words, we need a theology and strategy of confrontation. That sounds rather violent, (laughs) but that's okay. That's what it's supposed to be. We need a theology and strategy of confrontation. We simply cannot hand-wring ourselves to death, sitting in the corner, sucking our thumbs, saying, my word, it's getting terrible. What should we do? That's not, we have to have a strategy of confrontation. We must get to the point where we say with boldness, filling our chests, filling our lungs, it's either Christ or it's chaos. Pick your pick it. It's either God's law or tyranny. It's either the kingdom of God or the weak little impetuous kingdoms of men. And change doesn't happen by being quiet about it. Listen, we must capture it all. Christ owns all of it, and Christ wants all of it. We have to capture everything, philosophy, education, theology, politics, intellect in the public square, and pure and undefiled religion. If you look at the typical marks of a church, most of it's just inward navel-gazing. That's typically the marks of a church. We have to have more marks of a church. Um, marks like abolition and Christian activism and politics and, all, and so on. But make no mistake, we, we have to capture it all. If Christ is Lord over everything, then he has something to say about everything. And, and you should not fear. All of Christ's enemies have feet of clay. All of Christ's enemies have feet of clay. Jesus is alive and well, and his enemies are but dust. And and here's the thing, okay? This isn't like a dominion experience in in one sense of the word, maybe, but this is a boot camp experience, okay? This is a boot camp experience. We're not not here to go down in a blaze of glory, hoping, hoping in battle to take maybe just a few enemies along with us. We want to develop a strategic fellowship, one that actually takes the land. It takes every enemy, every society, every institution, one by one, okay? This is tactical Christianity. Tactical Christianity. Cultural revolutions happen when the narrative of the day is found to be teetering on the brink of destruction and folly. So you, you, you should try this. Sometimes I'll turn on the news and just laugh because everybody's got problems, but nobody has a solution. They're just lamenting and complaining. Trump did this, or the Supreme Court did this, or, and it's, sometimes the problems are analyzed correctly, sometimes they're not, they're just kind of, you know, assumed and talked about. But all cultural revolutions happen when the narrative of the day is on the brink, it's teetering, okay? It's, it's, it's folly and everyone knows it. Humanism doesn't even really trust itself. It can't because it knows it's impotent. It knows it's stupid. Don't use that word, kids. It's not nice. It's our job, though. Our job is to point out all the holes in the boat, right? We're, we're, to, we're to show this is what's wrong with your theology. This is what's wrong with your philosophy. This, this is why you can't fix this. 
And I think that's what's missing from most churches. Instead of hiding behind our four walls and having our own little parties and cutesy events, we must get to the point of confrontation with the culture around us. Remember, prophets have spines. They also have vocal cords. Jesus did not come to try and make salvation happen on the earth. That's not why he came. Jesus came to actually save the earth. That was his intention. That was his goal. So we're, we are not taking part of a political campaign to try and just, you know, get a few of our partisan wishes on the ballot and hope for the best. We are unequivocally challenging the institutions, idols, and powers that be by saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. He owns it. He owns this. So our, our salvation message is a message of accomplishment. It is finished. That's the message. The apostles didn't get arrested for acquiescing to Rome. They didn't get thrown in jail for believing the gospel. They were persecuted, arrested, beaten, and even killed because they said Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, which simply means that Jesus gets to tell Caesar what to do, which means that if, if we wish to partake in Christ's government, then we have to submit to proper jurisdiction in these spheres. We, we can't claim things for ourselves. Okay, we don't need any more Aikens in our midst. What we need right now is a church that wishes to confront the world and tell it all of its sins and commits, it, commits themselves to, to begging them of, of repentance, begging them to be reconciled. And, and don't think for a moment that when Christ sovereignly predestined and saved you, that he did it so you could just do whatever you want. Jesus Christ bled for you so you could be in, conscripted into his army. We're not here for ourselves, are we? It's not why we're here. We're not here for our little agenda. We have been assembled as a political group of empire-subverting radicals. All 15 of us. We're, we are a political group of empire-subverting radicals because we have a king. And that's just what we are. It's what, what it means to be a Christian. And when you start living like this, when you start daily strategically in all of these spheres living like this, know that you'll be persecuted. Know that you'll be persecuted. When you tell Herod that it's not lawful for him to have his brother's wife, you'll get your head lopped off. You, you will be told things that you've never never heard before. And, and if we want the world around us to say, man, what are these Christians going to do next? What are they going to do? Then we have to give them something to respond to. And frankly, the modern church is giving them nothing but garbage to respond to. There are two ways. There are two ways to respond to the Christian who is enthused about the kingdom of God. My assumption is you all here are enthused about the kingdom of God. There are two ways someone can respond to you. Two ways. Either they will repent and they will join in on the enthusiasm. That's what we want. Or, or they'll harden their heart and fight against you. They'll either join in the enthusiasm or they'll harden their heart and fight against you. The former then becomes an ally. The latter then becomes so full of envy because now his complacency is exposed. So we're deconstructing and reconstructing, and that's the responses you'll get. So we, we must have the audacity to obey God as individuals, as families, as churches, and as nations. The, the audacity to to work hard for the kingdom, to study, right, for kids, for you to learn about this world that God has made so that you can honor him and obey him with your life, um, engaging in abolition and so forth. 
Cross and crown church must be builders and resistors. We must build an alternative way of living and resist all of the ungodly social orders of the day. That's our calling. That's our strategy. That's our kingdom strategy. That's why we won't have all these programs to keep us looking busy in case Jesus comes back right away. That's why we won't busy ourselves with nonsensical Christianity. We will build businesses. We will do economics in an honest, God-honoring way. We will do education in such a way as to shape the next generation of warriors to do the same thing we are doing. We will even take, listen to this, we will take calculated risks for the kingdom. We, we know there's a division of labor in the kingdom. Not everybody's going to do everything. Some of us have to, have to do this. Some of us have to do that. All of us have a role. And so Crossing Crown Church, my question for you is, are you ready? Are you ready to take the land? We have the leaven of the gospel. Will we live like it? I pray that we do. For Christ's cross and Christ's crown, let's pray. Our Father and God, we have just opened up your word and made several observations about your sovereignty and Christ's authority. We have heard the call to be faithful stewards of this world by obeying you in all spheres of life. Fathers, we think through this young church plant what it means to be strategic for your kingdom. I pray that your spirit would anoint us for the task, that we would be bold, engaged in society, and focused on, on each of our purposes. May we be a church that people say, man, these people have turned the world upside down and come here also. We ask for your blessing, Lord, as we seek to live faithfully unto you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.